All righty. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. I'm glad you guys could all be here for the 37th annual conference on ancient culture. So, Bill, good seeing you. Um, I'm honored to be presenting a paper on the 21st century American popular leaders. Although we are more than 700 years removed from that era today, there are still many things we can learn from this fascinating time period. You might be asking yourself, the year is 2852, we live on Mars now, and the moon. How can we know who those ancient Americans look like as popular leaders? That's a good question. Fortunately, I have an answer, a breakthrough. Last year, on an archaeological dig at an old library, I was lucky enough to be part of a team that uncovered a treasure trove of recordings. At first, we didn't know what we had uncovered. They were about 4.5 inch flat disks with kind of this reflective silver on one side, and on the other side, there was some kind of rudimentary pictures. We soon realized these disks were some kind of a store information, kind of a cab tablet of some sort, and lab analysis kind of confirmed this. Once we engineered a way to read the information on these disks, we learned that there's something called DVDs, some type of basic video file. I assigned a very prestigious research group to look at these DVDs that were located together in one section of this very, very ancient library. After watching many and hundreds and hundreds of hours of video footage, I have finally realized I'm looking at documentaries about popular American leaders. Apparently, there were several groups that made these documentaries, but the biggest company was called Maraval. I'm excited to share with you today my findings on four of these special individuals. In the 21st century, there were these select humans that were chosen as leaders. It appears their primary job was to protect the population from those who could wreak wide-scale havoc on society. On multiple occasions, these leaders were assembled to fight against alien invaders in overwhelmingly bad circumstances. Interesting enough, our space exploration have yet to find any of these alien societies mentioned in these documentaries. There was a large group of special leaders, and it seems to be one of them was the most important, of course the most popular, uh, by the man named Tony Stark. He was referred to as Iron Man, although I couldn't find anything to do with his affinity to iron, but Mr. Stark was apparently one of the richest people in the 21st century and had unlimited resources. He was an inventor whose primary focus was on armor and weapon systems. His own armor kept changing every documentary I watched. He even helped discover time travel, which we still have not discovered time travel. We are way behind the times, people. A technology that disappeared to our disappointment. Another leader of these uh, documentaries was someone called Steve Rogers, also known as Captain America. 
Mr. Rogers was born early in the 20th century, was subject to military experiment that made him grow almost twice as large, and his favorite weapon was a large round shield, which seems incredibly basic by 21st century, but very, very powerful. Many other leaders seemed to look to Mr. Rogers for guidance, and at one point, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Stark had a strong disagreement over someone called the Winter Soldier. And this started some type of a civil war. Again, we, we, it's, it's hazy. We don't know what civil war this was, but it started one. Um, currently, we only have that one documentary chronicling this civil war. Um, our third leader in this study was much younger than the rest of the team, someone by the name of Peter Parker, a teenager from New York who was bitten by a radioactive spider. There seems to be a lot of radioactive Active uh, animals back in the 21st century. Uh, good thing we got rid of that due to our treaty. But somehow this spider seemed to have bit and changed his molecular structure enough to give him spider-like qualities. He was known as professionally uh, as Spider-Man. Mr. Parker was somehow allowed to join this elite task force, even though he was the younger one, uh, again to fight alien invasions, uh, even though we still have no idea who these aliens are. Uh, we will do more research on Mr. Parker. Also, this alien invasion is missing, so there's so much we can learn from these historical documents. The fourth leader, and the most fascinating to our research team, was one we could find the least information about. His name is Mr. Thor Odensen a warrior from another planet, which we have yet to find, called Asgard, not something we record of in any of our star charts, but this could be because the planet was destroyed in one of the documentaries I watched. It's, it's very, very heart-wrenching. Um, he battled this group called the Avengers, and he was part of them, and his favorite weapon was a heavy hammer, and he had strong electric conductivity that somehow could channel lightning bolts and generate kind of storm systems. And Thor's ability to jump through worlds faster than speed light is something we still have to learn. Again, all these wonderful technologies that have been lost due to time. In summary, most of these leaders were granted super abilities either as subjects of secret military experiments or by exposure to radioactive substances. It seems radioactive material was not safeguarded back in the 21st century. Alien invaders were very common in the 21st century, even though we've never seen any aliens in the last 800 years. The most elite of these leaders were a part of group avenging, but we have yet to determine what are they avenging. And then these special abilities were given incredible latitude to act in any manner they wanted. My historical research team and I look forward to many hours of careful study and plan to present further findings at our next year's conference. Later this year, we're going to publish two papers. One about a scientist who has anger management problems and a split personality disorder and another about a strange medical doctor with interdimension dimensional travel abilities. Again, thank you so much for making this symposium. I'm glad you all came to this night. It's a record-breaking night. Thank you.
How many of you are glad that you are here tonight to hear part of this special symposium on Marvell and the documentaries they produced in the 21st century? Now, what just happened here? So we jumped forward 700 years into the future, and we have this archaeologist who finds this treasure trove of information, and he's presenting a paper on these documentaries he found from the 21st century. And, of course, we can all laugh along, and it sounds ridiculous. Why? Were these documentaries? No. We all understand that these were popular movies, currently popular movies. What happened with the archaeologist in this little pretend skit was that he failed to consider the genre of what he was looking at. And so tonight, we're going to spend a little time. I'm going to try and clip along as fast as I can. And we're going to talk about genre and why this is important when you're studying the Bible. So when I say genre, what am I talking about? Genre, simply put, is the literary style that an author uses to express their ideas. So superhero movies, that's a genre. You have westerns. You have documentaries. We've got fantasy. You've got romance, history, biographies, etc. Anytime you walk into a library, it's full of different genres. Same kind of thing with our movies. For the most part, they fall into different genres. It's really no different when we are reading the Bible. You don't read a newspaper the same way that you read a textbook. And you don't read a textbook the same way that you'd read a graphic novel. Because we understand there are differences in genre. And the way that we read each genre affects how we understand and interpret that material. The Bible is actually a collection of different writings written by over 40 different people across about 1,500 years. We have 66 different books, and they cover multiple different genres. So you cannot read all of the Bible the exact same way. And the more that you understand these biblical genres and the way they were writing and the way they were trying to convey their information, the easier it will be for you to understand what you're reading. I personally have found that when I'm teaching Bible studies, when I'm answering questions with people, many times common misunderstandings that people have about the scriptures is because they've failed to recognize the genre of scripture that they're reading. And so you can't read Genesis the way that you read Proverbs. You can't read Proverbs the same way that you read Psalms or Joel or Acts or Daniel or Revelation. These are all different genres within the Bible. And so when we understand some of the basic rules, if you will, in the background and the way that these are set up, it will help us as we read through the Bible. So tonight we're going to go along. You have more notes than I think I've given you in the last couple weeks. There's a lot of material there. I'm going to have to skip over different parts of it to try and get as much as I can. But I wanted to give you the notes so you've got plenty of material you can look at. And if I talk fast enough, I've been told we might even be able to do a Q&A at the end of it. So let's just start looking at your notes at some of these different genres we find in the Old Testament. And then after the break, we'll look at some more and get into genres we find in the New Testament. One of the largest genres that we find throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is what we would call history, or probably even better, a narrative genre. And in your notes, you can see I've listed the different books of the Bible that fit under each of these genres. So Genesis, a good portion of Exodus, Numbers, Joshua through Esther, there's 12 books right there, parts of Daniel. 
These are all what we would call narrative or historical books. Keep in mind that the Bible does not record history just for the sake of history. So these are different than other ancient historical texts because they were meant to preserve select stories as teaching tools. Most of the world to this day still uses story as a primary way to convey and teach information. I briefly hit on this, I think, in the first night of this series. Here in the West, we go to school and you tend to have a teacher up at the front and they're writing on a chalkboard or a blackboard or maybe they're projecting something from their computer on a screen and we're going to go point one, point two, point three, and this is how we tend to convey information, their data points. In much of the world, Asia, Latin American countries, Africa, again, most of the world other than the Western world, they tend to tell a lot more stories. The way that you convey information, the way you teach things to children is through stories. So when we look at the historical books in the Bible, they are not there just to preserve history. Each of those stories is purposely preserved in the scripture by inspiration of God to teach us a lesson. It's there probably to teach us multiple lessons. So we see lots of different narrative historical stories throughout the Old Testament that are there to convey some truth about God and his relationship with us. It is the primary way that scripture tells us about God and his relationship to humanity is through the telling of stories. But as we read these stories and we're learning from them, another thing to keep in mind is that the Bible records good and bad stories. That's what makes it fascinating if you're studying religions that the scriptures, especially the what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, preserves the history of these people and their relationship with their God. But unlike most other religions, we see they make a bunch of terrible, terrible choices over and over and over again. And it's preserved in scripture. There are not many cultures out there. In fact, the, the Hebrews are pretty unique in the, in the fact that they've preserved their religious writings and their historical history and said, yeah, we were pretty bad at serving our God. We failed over and over and over again. Why would you do that? Why would you not just hit the high points and the glory points? Because they're meant to teach us something. So as you read through the scriptures, recognize that just because this has been preserved and just because you're meant to learn something from it doesn't mean that it's endorsed. So we find lots of different kinds of behavior in the Old Testament. If you haven't read Judges in a while, go back and read it. Almost the primary purpose of that book is to say, this is really, really bad. And here's what happened when people do whatever they want and they don't have a king and they're not listening to God. So there's very, very little in Judges that we would say, this is good behavior, you should copy it. Most of what we find in Judges are examples of bad behavior. But again, it's been preserved to teach us something. Next section, the law. So you will see Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then a good portion of Exodus and also number are what we would call legal writings. These legal passages contain many specific instructions for both ceremonial laws, which kind of foreshadow, they kind of hint at things that are going to come in the New Testament, and some of them are no longer applicable today. Some laws were concerned with civil life in ancient Israel, and they have no application today whatsoever. Many of what we see in the legal writings of the Old Testament were laws that governed the daily life of this group of people that lived halfway around the world thousands of years ago. 
And so while we can learn information from it, while we could even draw applications from it, it does not directly apply to us. We can see some principles from there. But you don't want to pick up Exodus and Leviticus and read back through it and then try to figure out how you're going to emulate all these practices in your personal life. And that sounds silly, but I have talked with people, and there are books out there from different religious groups over the years who have tried to do that to the best of their ability, and it leads to all kinds of confusion. And they've failed to consider the cultural context, which we'll talk about next week, and also the purpose of those writings and why they've been preserved. Law generally takes two forms as we're looking through the Scripture. We see things that are precepts, which are general rules or principles, and they prescribe a course of conduct. The precepts are probably what we primarily can draw uh, applications from. These are general rules about how people should behave in society. And so because they're general rules, we can look at that, and while they don't directly apply to us, these precepts teach us something about how we interact with neighbors, how we interact with family members, how we interact with employees, how we interact with foreigners and strangers and immigrants who have moved Uh, Old Testament term, you'll see aliens, these resident aliens who live among you, okay? How do we interact with people? We can learn stuff from this. The other type of law that we see besides precepts is case law. And now these are very specific instances that were used to set a precedent for future future situations, excuse me. So when you're reading Old Testament, and I know all of you, your favorite book is Leviticus, and you spend lots of time poring over it. You just keep coming back to that book every month. You just, you're drawn to it in a very magnetic way. But as you do this, try to remember that generally you're outlining precepts and you're outlining case law. Case law is an example of something that happened, and here's how we should treat it in the future. Precepts, more general principles about here's how we interact with others. We've got history that covers a good portion of the Old Testament. We have legal writings. The next section, surprisingly, is actually one of the biggest, and that's poetry. Let's look at what books contain poetry. You'll see that in your notes. Most of Job is actually in poetic form. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah has poetry, so does Jeremiah, Lamentations, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and little snippets here and there in some of the other prophetic books. This is a lot of material. It's a huge amount of material. In fact, about one-third of the Old Testament was poetry. One third of it. Let me put it a different way. If you took all the different poetic sections of the Old Testament and you were to combine them all in one place in your Bible and put it together, that one section of your Bible would be bigger than the entire New Testament. So by volume, it's a huge amount of material in the Old Testament that's actually in poetry. Only seven books in the Old Testament do not contain poetry. Leviticus, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, and Malachi. Why am I emphasizing this? Poetry was a big deal to the ancient Israelites. 
It's one of the primary communication forms, one of the primary genres that we see in the Old Testament. Again, it covers about a third of the Old Testament that was written in a poetic form. Part of the reason we don't necessarily see this immediately is because when we think of poetry, often in English, what we primarily think of is rhyming couplets or things that are set off in a certain stanza or a way they look. And Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. Hebrew poetry, rhyme is not the defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry. The defining characteristic is what they call parallelism, or in other words, this idea of two thoughts that go together. Sometimes it's referred to as thought rhyming. This idea is paired with this idea, and then this idea is paired with this idea. Usually, a passage, a poetic passage, will contain two or more lines that deal with the same theme but in different ways. Sometimes these phrases are synonymous and they restate the same idea. Here's an example of this. Proverbs 1.20 says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. So again, it's a parallel line. We've said the same idea two different ways. Wisdom calls aloud. Wisdom raises her voice. Okay? So here's one example. Sometimes these parallel thoughts are antithetical. In other words, they express the opposite idea of each other. How about this one? Proverbs 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. So see how we've paired opposites here. So we've got thoughts that go together, sometimes Thought A and thought B are covering the same thing and saying it two different ways. Sometimes thought A and thought B are like two sides of a coin. They're antithetical. They're showing opposing sides of what's happening. Many times, Hebrew poetry has parallel lines that do not clearly mirror each other. Hebrew poetry often does not have synonymous or antithetical lines, and it doesn't rhyme in English, so it's a little harder for us to see it. Many of you probably have Bibles that may offset poetry sections, and they're indented a little more. Perhaps the font is a different size, or maybe it's italicized, or some other way in your Bible to offset it a little bit to let you know, hey, this is a poetic passage. If you don't have a Bible that does that, I'd encourage you to look at one, because it'll help you to recognize these different poetic sections. Let me give you another example. Let's go to Psalm 148, verses 7 through 12. Here's another good example of Hebrew poetry, but again, we don't see exact parallel thought-for-thought lines like I just outlined. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the depths. Fire and hail, I just jumped, yes. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all the people, the princes and all the judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, train too far, both young men and maidens, old men and children. So here's another example of where we've got poetic lines, and they don't necessarily parallel each other, but even in English, we still kind of see we're not just speaking in direct prose. This is not straightforward instruction. There's something else going on here. 
poetic lines tend to be shorter than prose, which is what we call normal speech that's written out. The lines tend to come in pairs, and they kind of match each other in length. In Hebrew, the sense of rhythm found in poetry is much more evident than it is when you translate it into English. Unfortunately, it can be hard to recognize because we lose some of that value when we go from one language into another, which is why I said if you have a Bible that offsets it or makes some sort of indication that this is a poetic passage, it'll help you to recognize when you're reading poetry. All right. So I've stressed that poetry was a big part of the Old Testament, a third of it. Why is that important? Why does it matter? Here's why. The reason that we need to recognize we're looking at poetry as we study the scriptures is because just like in English, poetry in Hebrew was meant to stir the emotions. Poetry uses very vivid language, and often it exaggerates a description to make a point. It makes extensive use of imagery and figurative language. Stormy winds fulfilling his word, mountains and hills and fruitful trees and cedars, beasts and all the cattle. See, it's very vivid language. We're describing word pictures. It's meant to get you thinking. It's meant to engage your imagination. It's meant to stir your emotions. It doesn't mean that poetry is not true. It just means that it's communicating truth in a different way than just plainly stating a group of facts. When you're reading poetry in the Bible, remember it's supposed to invoke feelings. It's meant to get your imagination going and to stir your emotions. Precision is not the goal in poetry. Touching your heart while speaking a biblical truth is the goal of poetry. So again, you can't read Leviticus the same way that you read the Psalms. We're not looking in Exodus where we've got precise measurements for the tabernacle layout. And then we get to a poetic section in the Psalms. It's not going to be precise. It's not that the writer was being sloppy. The writer's doing something completely different. The writer is trying to stir the emotions and get you thinking in a different way. So what does this tell us about God, by the way? Let's step back from the words themselves for a moment and just think, if a third of the Old Testament, more than the entire volume of the New Testament, by word count, if a third of it is poetic language, and the whole purpose of that poetic language is to stir your emotions and get you thinking word pictures and trying to touch your heart that way, it tells us something about the way that God conveys truth. It tells us the fact that God is creative. It tells us that God designed us to be creative. It tells us that God is emotional. Sometimes we see God represented in this very, like, distant, cold, stoic, removed sort of way. That's a different lesson for another time. That's a very Greek philosophical understanding of God. It is not at all a Hebrew Old Testament understanding of God. When you go back and you read Genesis, God is playing in the dirt and making humans, okay? God is interacting with his creation. God delights in debate and argument and invites people to challenge him. I talked about that a few Sunday nights ago. God likes discourse. God wants interaction. 
We see God described as happy. We see him described as sad. We see him described as angry. Remember, we're made in the image of God. And how many of you are emotional? All of us. Those of you who didn't put your hand up, you're lying. (laughs) You may stuff it. You may not express it as much. But all of us have a huge range of emotion. Where do we get that from? It comes from our creator. And so as we read the scriptures especially as we read these Old Testament poetic passages and we see more and more of these descriptors as they describe our relationship with God and they use very emotional language, it's important to recognize God's okay with that. God welcomes that. As you speak with God, he's okay when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're frustrated, when you're mad, when you're depressed, when you're high, when you're low. Talk to God. You reflect him and God likes expression and God likes emotion and we see a lot of it throughout the biblical writings the next section in your notes is on lament and we're actually going to skip that and we'll come back to it in a little while so let's skip over lament and let's go on to wisdom literature proverbs ecclesiastes and some portions of job and also the psalms are what we would consider wisdom literature Usually, wisdom books do not record the direct commandments of God, but rather it's reasoning about God, our relationship with God, and practical issues of life. Part of what these books teach us is the inadequacy of human reasoning apart from God, especially the different speeches that we see preserved in the book of Job and then also the book of Ecclesiastes. So therefore, when you're reading wisdom literature, especially when you get to Job and when you get to Ecclesiastes, you need to keep in mind and ask yourself, is this book teaching me wisdom, spiritual wisdom, things I should be aware of, or is this book demonstrating to me how inadequate human wisdom is? I personally really love the book of Ecclesiastes because you got to understand what it's trying to do. There's this phrase that shows up over and over and over in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun. Everything's vain. Everything's meaningless. Everything's pointless, depending on the translation that you're reading. And it sounds really, really depressing at first. But you've got to put Ecclesiastes in contrast to the other wisdom book right there, Proverbs. Proverbs is demonstrating godly wisdom. Ecclesiastes is demonstrating here's what wisdom looks like when you remove it from God. When God's not part of the equation, everything becomes meaningless. It becomes vanity of vanity. It becomes worthless under the sun. In other words, here on earth. The book of Ecclesiastes is important because it gives us an example of human wisdom separated from divine instruction. The author of Ecclesiastes is most likely King Solomon. And you have someone who's very, very wealthy and has unlimited resources and can do anything they want and chase any dream they have. But at the end of the day, they're still miserable. And everything is worthless. And it was pointless because they were only looking at things from a human perspective. So again, we see wisdom presented even in different ways within wisdom literature. And a good contrast is if you read through the book of Proverbs, 
and then afterwards read through Ecclesiastes and see two kind of contrasting views on how we can look at the world. Wisdom literature often makes use of Proverbs, and Proverbs are these short, memorable, sometimes little pithy, biting statements that express a general truth. And it's very important to remember that Proverbs were meant to express a general truth. When you read Proverbs, in the back of your mind, you think most of the time. Because that's what they're trying to convey. In general, this is how things work. Proverbs are excellent maxims to live by. But they're not always applicable to every single situation in life. Do not make Proverbs hard and fast rules. Okay? They are there to teach us and instruct us and give us guidelines for living. But when we make Proverbs hard and fast rules, we try to make them these ironclad guarantees that if I do X, Y will happen. It's going to lead to disappointment and it's going to lead to frustration. Some of the most painful situations I have personally encountered in doing Bible studies and talking with people is when they've misunderstood the fact that a proverb is a general guideline that applies most of the time. I'll give you probably the easiest example of this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to who have been frustrated because they thought, I did train my child, and I did raise my child in a biblical home, and I've taught them these things, and now they're adults and making their own decisions, and they're not living the way that I trained them. What happened? How did God fail me? Proverbs said if I train them this way, they won't depart from it. It's a maxim. It's a guideline. It's a way you should live your life, but it's not an ironclad guarantee. So when you read the Proverbs, absorb them. Eat that book, right? Ingest them. Take a proverb. Take a chapter in proverb and read it each day. So on the first day of the month, read the first chapter. On the second day, read the second chapter. You do that for about a year. It'll take you five minutes in the morning just to read a chapter out of Proverbs. So you do that for a whole calendar year. You read that book 12 times each day reading one proverb, and you will begin to really, really internalize it. And you will find that it begins to change the way you think and the way that you look at life. And there is incredible, spiritual, divinely guided wisdom in that book that will give you guidelines on how to approach many different situations in life. As long as we understand that they're proverbs, they're not always ironclad, guaranteed rules of how things are going to happen. All right, let's look at another huge section of the Old Testament as we work our way through these genres. And that's prophecy. The prophetic books begin in Isaiah, and they run through Malachi. Five major and 12 minor prophets. And then we also find prophecy in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. By the way, you'll hear people refer to the major and the minor prophets. People have heard that term before. Ever hear that term referring to biblical writings? So, you ready for the super deep answer? Why are they called major prophets versus minor prophets? It has to do with size. That's it. It means Isaiah was long-winded and Joel was short and to the point. It does not mean that Isaiah was more spiritual 
or a greater prophet than Joel was. When we say major and minor, we're talking about the length of the book. So we have five larger prophetic writings that we call the major prophets. And then we have 12 shorter ones. In Hebrew, oftentimes those, in a Hebrew Bible, those 12 shorter ones are called the book of the 12, and they're actually all grouped together as one writing. But the prophetic books, let's talk about those for a moment. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Why is that important? Because prophecy is a message, a direct message from God to humans. It usually contains an exhortation to right conduct, to avoid something that's unrighteous, and to prepare for judgment to come. Many times, prophecy may include a vision of the future or even just a potential future, but that is not always the case. Prophecy is not about foretelling. If you reduce prophecy to the idea that it's just supposed to give you an indication of the future, you've missed the point. Go back and read the prophetic books. Go back and read the historical books where it refers to the prophets and how they'd walk in and they'd tell a king what to do or not to do, or they'd give commands to a king or rebuke a king. That's not foretelling. That's a judgment. That's a, I come to you with a direct message from God. You better knock it off. That's the prophet acting like a prophet. When we reduce prophecy to the idea that it's only talking about future events, you're actually going to cut out the majority of biblical prophecy. See, even when we use that, it's become a loaded term. When we say biblical prophecy, we're thinking about future events. But that's not actually what that term refers to. Biblical prophecy and a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. So try to resist the temptation to reduce prophecy just to talking about the future. If we make the prophetic books only about future occurrences, you're going to miss most of it. And you'll read prophetic writings and maybe misunderstand them because you're not recognizing that a prophetic writing is when someone is speaking on behalf of God and giving a message. Most of the time, instruction. Many times, it's a warning and correction with that instruction. And sometimes, it includes information about the future. And even that may be information about a possible future. You'll see plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament where it's, if you do this, this will happen. Or, if you don't stop doing this, this is what's going to happen to you. So it's not even a guaranteed future. It's a warning about the future. Having said all that, I also recognize that most of the time when we think of prophecy, we tend to think of future telling, this forecasting of what's coming down the road. So when we're reading these passages that have to do with this foretelling of the future, here are a few things. I think I picked, let me look at my notes, three things to keep in mind and this is not all of the rules about prophecy, but just some general guidelines. Yes, three things to keep in mind as you're reading prophetic passages in the Scripture. The first thing to keep in mind is that prophecy that includes a foretelling aspect to it often covers collapsed time 
or what you may hear referred to as prophetic gaps. What is this talking about? God at different times inspired the prophets to write about things that were coming down the road. But he gave them just a glimpse, a little snapshot of the future. How many of you have ever gone on vacation and you saw a mountain range in the distance? And I don't mean like cute little hills. I mean a real mountain range. I'm from the West Coast. I'm spoiled, right? I think of the Cascades. You can see these things from 100 miles away, and it covers your entire line of sight, and it's a whole ridge line. You know what I'm talking about? It's mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain. Now, from hundreds of miles away, they all look like a line of mountains, and they all look similar in height. But as you get closer and closer and closer to that mountain range, you'll realize those mountains are not all the same height, and they're not all right next to each other. There's distance between them. From a long way back, they look connected and they look right next to each other. But the closer you get to them, the more you realize there's distance between them. It's often that way in biblical prophecy, this idea of prophetic gaps. God would give a prophet a future glimpse of what's going to happen, and they'd write it down. But they were seeing the high points of history that was coming down the road, like the peaks on a mountain range. And they couldn't see all the distances that were between the events that they were referring to. So biblical prophecy is full of prophetic gaps. When you read biblical prophecy that's talking about future telling, foretelling, it may name events and it sounds like they're right next to each other. And if the prophecy's already been fulfilled, there are many places we can point to where part of the prophecy was fulfilled and then there was a long break and then the next part was fulfilled. Same thing when we look at the most famous prophetic book, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, as we had our big group learning back in April, we'll see things in Revelation, and, and you got to resist the temptation to push all of that into the future like none of it's already happened because parts of it have already been fulfilled. But there may be long, long gaps between some of these events that are named. So when you're reading about foretelling, this idea of future-telling prophecy, keep in mind that there are often gaps big spans of time between the events that are named. So when you think prophecy, think mountain ranges. From a distance, they look about the same height, and they all look close together. As you get closer to them, you realize they're different heights, and there may be a lot of distance between them. A second thing to keep in mind when we're talking about prophecy is the idea of multiple fulfillments. Multiple fulfillments. God often would tell the prophet something that was going to happen and then it happened and then it happened and then it happened because God was telling them a general principle about human behavior and something that was going to occur. Speaking of revelation again, talking to people and they'll say, well, do you think it could have been this event in history or they may even pick up an Old Testament prophecy and was it this or was it this or was it this? I can smile at them and say, yes, because there's a good chance it was all of those because we don't want to make this hard and fast rule that prophecy is only fulfilled once. Nowhere in Scripture does it actually state that. But often when talking to people, we've picked up this idea that a prophecy is only fulfilled once. Now, some prophecies are very, very specific and situational. They were fulfilled once. But there are prophecies that are fulfilled more than once. There are prophecies, I'm going to give you an example in just a moment, where it's fulfilled in the Old Testament, and then it's 
fulfilled again in the New Testament in a completely different context. Probably the most famous example of this is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we read this at Christmas time, and we think of the birth of Jesus, and that's absolutely true. Matthew plainly stated that. But go back tonight when you have time and read all of Isaiah chapter 7. That prophecy had a very, very temporal, specific fulfillment at the time of the prophecy. And that word virgin can be translated young woman in Hebrew. Now, when you get to Greek, Parthenos, when we get in the New Testament, it very specifically means an unmarried young woman who's never had sexual relations. It's a more specific Greek word, but that Hebrew word means a young woman. And the prophet Isaiah was giving a prophecy to the king, and he's letting him know, look, that young lady, she's going to give birth to a child. And before that child, you've got to read the rest of Isaiah chapter 7, before that child is old enough to be fully weaned, your problems about these invading kings, they're going to be over. It had a very specific fulfillment, and that fulfillment was within the next few years. But then we read this same prophecy again, and now we read it in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And it says, So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgins shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Matthew repeats this prophecy from Isaiah 7 and very explicitly says, This is referring to the birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary. And it was. So was it fulfilled in Isaiah's day or was it fulfilled in the time of Jesus? The answer, yes. Because prophecy can have more than one fulfillment. So keep that in mind as you read prophecy. And then the third thing I'll point about prophecy before we take our mid-break is the idea that prophecy often contain judgment against people and nations and spirits all at the same time. How many of you have ever used a digital camera? And whether it's on your phone or you actually at one point had a digital camera. Have you ever noticed when you use the zoom feature that you'll get close to something and zoom in and it'll focus, but then the other stuff in the picture gets kind of blurry? And then maybe you back out and things back here become in focus, but stuff way out there kind of gets blurry and it tends to change how you're zooming. It's the same thing with prophecy. And we see that in Scripture where a prophet may be speaking of something prophetic. And the focus shifts during the prophecy. And it may even shift multiple times. Oftentimes, a prophet may speak against a wicked ruler, right? And they're specifically condemning the king of a nation. But by extension, as you read the context, they're also condemning the nation itself for its wicked acts. And then in the same prophetic passage, it's like the focus shifts again. And we're not only condemning the king and the nation, we're also condemning the evil spirits located in that nation who are really the powers at play. A good example of this as a homework assignment for later tonight is go back and read Isaiah chapter 14. And you'll see this shifting context where we're giving a judgment against a king, but we're also giving a judgment against the nation, and we're also giving a judgment against the spirits behind the nation. And the focus of the prophecy kind of shifts. Now, it gives rich meaning to the text, but it also can be a little frustrating because you read it and you think, well, who's it talking about? Is it the king? 
Is he talking about this nation? Is he talking about the evil spirits at play in this nation? And the answer is yes. Because prophecy works that way. There is no secret decoder ring to prophecy. You can go to any bookstore and find lots of people will tell you the right way to interpret prophecy. And you'll notice they don't agree with each other because there's not a set way that applies to every single situation. Prophecy is primarily about God conveying a truth to his people. And you got to keep that in mind as you're reading it. All right, you can go ahead and stand. And Nick, I don't know if we have a five-minute timer that we can put up, but we do have snacks available in the back. You've got five minutes to go ahead and go to the bathroom or get yourself some water or a little snack, and then we'll come back together. Psalm 44. O God, we have heard it with our own ears. Our ancestors have told us all you did in their day, in days long ago. You drove out the pagan nations by your power and gave all the land to our ancestors. You crushed their enemies and set our ancestors free. They did not conquer the land with their swords. It was not their own strong arm that gave them victory. It was your right hand and strong arm and the blinding light from your face that helped them, for you loved them. You are my king and my God. You command victories for Israel. Only by your power can we push back our enemies. Only in your name can we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. I do not count on my sword to save me. You are the one who gives us victory over our enemies. You disgrace those who hate us. Oh God, we give glory to you all the day long and constantly praise your name. But now... You have tossed us aside in dishonor. You no longer lead our armies to battle. You make us retreat from our enemies and allow those who hate us to plunder our land. You have butchered us like sheep and scattered us among the nations. You sold your precious people for a pittance, making nothing on the sale. You let our neighbors mock us. We're an object of scorn and derision to those around us. You have made us the butt of your jokes. They shake their heads at us in scorn. We can't escape the constant humiliation. Shame is written across our faces. All we hear are the taunts of our mockers. All we see are our vengeful enemies. And all this has happened. Though we have not forgotten you, we have not violated your covenant. Our hearts have not deserted you. We have not strayed from your path. Yet you 
have crushed us in the jackal's desert home. You have covered us with darkness and death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands in prayer to foreign gods, God surely would have known it, for he knows secrets of every heart. But for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and our oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up, help us, because ransom us because of your unfailing love. What, what just happened there? So we start reading. By the way, that was one psalm. Okay? So we start talking about how great and glorious God is. And then halfway through, all of a sudden, where'd you go, God? You abandoned. We're the butt of everybody's jokes. You sold us off, and you didn't even make a profit on it. And there's this huge emotional arc in this swing that happened here. And this is just one example. We see this kind of behavior throughout the Psalms. I did not want the verses up on the screen because I wanted you just to listen to it. We are very much a literate nation. We tend to read the Bible. Many, many places around the world, they are oral nations. They tend to hear the Bible. And so we have multiple cases of this throughout the Bible where we see this huge arc that happens in one piece of writing, and it covers a wide range of emotions, and often it swings really, really low like that. And if you pay attention in the Psalms, there are multiple places where the author cries out and says, Where are you, God? This isn't fair. You abandoned me. We see Job do this kind of thing as well. What are we reading? We're reading a lament. A lament is an expression of deep sorrow, distress, or frustration where the author cries out to God, demanding an answer, demanding some sort of action be taken. The majority of the laments are individual compositions. It's one person expressing their emotion, their grief, their anger to God. But there are a group of laments that reflect the pain and sometimes even repentance of the whole community. A lament is different than a rant or a tantrum. If the writer of the lament simply complains to God, that's not a lament. Okay? In your own prayer time, if you just vent and complain and grumble and stomp off and you're done, that's not a lament. That's a tantrum. A lament has emotional movement. It goes somewhere. You heard it in what Sister Meg just did so well. We start somewhere, and we may swing low, but then even at the end, we're rising back up, and we're calling out to God for help. Laments parallel praise. A lament articulates grief, 
praise articulates God's faithfulness. A lament has submission to God. Praise gives obedience to God. A lament is a relinquishment of revenge. You'll notice even in this lament, they may vent all the frustration and the anger and the where are you, but when they're done, they put it back in God's hand. You're just. You take care of it. You rescue me. And it lets it go. A lament moves towards something. Specifically, it moves towards praise. And this is very important because the laments comprise a huge chunk of the Psalter, what we call the Psalms, the inspired poetic psalm book of the Bible. We have 150 psalms in the Bible. And at least 60 of them, depending on how you define what a lament is, at least 60 of those 150 psalms are laments. You think about that. God has given us an inspired poetic book that covers the range of human emotions and almost half of it expresses anger, frustration, and grief. So what does that tell us about our emotions and the way that we should talk to God? Laments are so powerful, you even have an entire book in the Old Testament. That's one lament. It's Lamentations. And Jeremiah wrote it after the destruction of the people, and they've been carried off. And it's a book written at a very, very low point. And guess what? God was okay with it. God inspired it and preserved it in Scripture for you to read today. So this screams at us, and I mean that because laments scream. This should scream at you that God welcomes our complaints. God welcomes our cries of distress. He is okay with you coming to him when you are frustrated, when you are scared, when you are hurt, when you are lost, when you feel injustice and saying, where are you, God? Why did you let this happen to me? He's not Zeus. There's no lightning bolt going to smash you into the ground for complaining. He says, come talk to me. Remember, a tantrum is when we just spill our guts and complain and rant and then stomp off. That's not what I'm talking about. A lament has movement. A lament expresses all the same things, but then in submission gives it back to God and says, help me. You work this out. I don't have enough time to dig into this more, but I wanted to point out that laments are very important. And it's okay for you to lament. 60 of the 150 psalms are lament. And then we have an entire book, Lamentations, that's a lament. It is okay to express your grief to God. He welcomes it. And we have good portions of Scripture that are inspired laments, preserved for our instruction. Let's jump over to the New Testament for a few minutes, and I'm going to try and clip along so we can do a few questions. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are all very, very familiar with these. You're going to have to go read my notes later because i got to move quickly. But let me make a book plug. I had this book with me last week. This is the best book I have ever looked at that gave a description of the Gospels and how they fit together. The Gospels are more than history. 
They are history. They're more than biography. They contain elements of biography, but they are their own special, unique category of literature. You can look at my notes, and you can see what they talk about in there. Why do we have four Gospels and not just one? We are blessed with four inspired accounts of the life of Jesus. Jesus is God become human, and none of us really fully understand this. He is the most complex individual ever, and the Gospels give us four different views, four portraits of this one Jesus, and they all highlight different aspects of him. Matthew had an audience in mind. Mark, what we call the Gospel of Mark, had a specific audience. So did Luke. So did John. And they were highlighting different aspects of Jesus' character. And I could spend an hour right here just on this subject. So look at your notes. And if you want to learn more, I highly, highly recommend this book. It's an excellent overview of how each one is unique and yet how they all relate together. And they're still telling one story. The book of Acts and the New Testament, is it history or is it something more? And the answer is, yes. It's both. It is the history of the early church. But again, like I opened by talking about story and narrative, Acts is there to instruct us. It's meant to be a blueprint. This one is kind of a no-brainer for us as Pentecostals because we take our instructions, if you will. We take our model from the book of Acts. There are many, many church groups out there that view the book of Acts as a recollection a recording of early church history. And when you reduce Acts just to church history, you read it and you go, wow, that was interesting. That's nice. And you move on from there. When we read Acts, and I believe we are reading it the way that Luke intended, you should read it and go, wow, that's interesting. I should try to live like that. Because it's not just history. It's meant to be instructional it's meant to give us an example of this is what a Christian life looks like. This is how the church grows. And what we read in Acts is just summaries. Here's an example for you, Acts 2.40. Day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching. Probably all of us can quote Acts 2.38, but get just two verses later. Pay attention to what it's saying. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. It's a summary Acts chapter 2 does not contain Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Go read it out loud. It'll take you less than five minutes. It's not his sermon. It's a summary. And we see all throughout the book of Acts, we have summaries. We have snapshots, glimpses, little synopsis of things that happened, high points in early church history that are meant to instruct us the way that we should live. Next category. I'm trying to go along fast. The epistles. Romans through Jude, we have 13 epistles by Paul and eight what we call general epistles. And then chapter two and three of the book of Revelation, the word epistle simply means a letter. And it's important to keep that in mind when you read the epistles. How many of you have ever gotten a letter from a friend? I may have to expand this to emails for some of our younger ones, right? But you get a letter from a friend. If you got a letter in the how many of you have ever gotten a multi-page letter from a friend or a family member or grandparent, something like that? Would you get that out of the mail, open it up, and immediately turn to the second page and read two sentences right out of the middle of that letter, and then go flip it back to the first page and read the first sentence, and then flip to the very end of the letter and read the last sentence, and then go back to the first page and read the third paragraph, and then go to the second page and read the fifth? That sounds dumb, doesn't it? So why do we do that with the epistles? 
Why do we jump all over? It's a letter. They were meant to be read like we read letters, and they were meant to be read aloud. In your own personal study time, I highly, highly encourage you to read the epistles all the way through. Most of them, Romans being an exception, the Corinthian correspondence, many of them you can read aloud to yourself in 30 minutes or less. So in your Bible reading, read Ephesians one day. Read Philippians one day. Read Galatians. Whole thing, nonstop, out loud to yourself. It's a letter. See what sticks out to you as you read the entire thing collectively together in one sitting aloud. You can read more in your notes. One final quick note on the epistles. The epistles were written to churches. We do have Philemon, but even then, it's still to the house church there. We have what we call the pastoral epistles written to Timothy and Titus. 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, these are written to individuals, but even in writing these individual letters, it's still collective instruction for a group. It's easy for us to lose this in English. Quick grammar repeat. First person, singular, I. First person, plural, we. Third person, singular, he or she. Third person, plural, they. Watch this. Second person, singular, you. Second person, plural, you. We're one of the only languages that does that, where our second person, plural, is the same as our first second person, singular. In fact, we don't even like it in English, so we have all kinds of regional variances. Y'all, you skies, I heard that when I moved out here, right? You guys, you can start thinking of use, right? All these different ways, because unofficially in English, we don't like it. So we try to just, all y'all from the South, you know, that's y'all, all y'all, that's everybody in the room. I learned that from my wife's family. We don't like our second person plural that sounds like our second person. Well, guess what? All throughout the epistles, it's loaded with second person plural. But it says you in English because that's proper English. These scriptures were written to collective groups. Philippians, the entire letter of Philippians, every single second person reference is plural in that letter to Philippians. Now that you know that, let's go back and read this famous verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now with much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Me and Jesus got this thing going on. That's not at all what Paul was talking about. He was writing a letter to a church saying, I'm gone and I can't be with you. So you, as a group, as a church body, work together to be saved. Has nothing to do with your private individual salvation. But we lose that in English if we're not careful. I could spend an hour here, but I don't have time. So read your notes. Just keep in mind when you're reading letters, if you can, read the whole letter. And remember, it's written to a group of people. And then finally, jump over to Revelation, Daniel, apocalyptic literature. Dr. Brickle was here. I'm not going to repeat what he said. I just want to point out, and you can read in the notes, it was an entire genre of writing. Daniel and Revelation are not unique. At the time they were written, it was a popular style of writing. It'd be like picking up a Louis L'Amour book and thinking this was the only Western ever written. 
Revelation and Daniel were apocalyptic literature. It was a style of writing. They're divinely inspired. They're the only divinely inspired apocalyptic writings. You can read in the notes a description of what apocalyptic literature was. I'm just pointing out that we read it, and then sometimes we act like it's this wild, crazy, weird, biblical sci-fi thing that makes no sense. you got to put it in context. If you picked up other apocalyptic literature, if you understood the genre and the way it's written, you'd go, oh, that's why he's doing that. Because that's the way you wrote that kind of literature. And if you want to know what it is, read your notes. And you can come talk to me afterwards. We are quickly running out of time. In fact, technically we are out of time. But I was told by the pastoral team that I needed to make time for questions and answers. So if we can do it quickly, if anybody has a question on what I've covered tonight, I'm going to pass around the mic. If you have questions, you can come up front. I'll take five minutes. I'll try to answer And then if you have other questions, you're welcome to come to me afterwards. Can you turn on that other mic? I guess you could say that uh, the difference between the historical books of the Old Testament and the, quote, historical, unquote, books of the New Testament is that the historical books of the Old Testament are kind of like guidelines of how to really mess up and do everything poorly. And then the guideline, the historical books of the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts, are kind of guidelines of how to do things properly, how to be good and proper Christians. I think that would be a general statement. Yes, we could say that's fair. We do see some good points in the historical books. Yeah. Predominantly what we see is a whole lot of bad decisions that have been preserved to teach us hey, you shouldn't act like that. And but some we, bad in the new. And we get some really bad choices that also happen in the Gospels and in the book of Acts as well. My point in talking about these historical books was to remind us it's not just history. When you reduce it to just history, you're missing the point. This has been divinely preserved history. And in fact, I didn't have time to get to this in the notes tonight. But the scriptures even tell us as you read the historical books, it makes reference to other historical books that have not been preserved. You know, and this is recorded in the book of the Kings or this is recorded in the Chronicles of so and so. And so we see that it's not even a complete collection of Israel's history. This is what's been preserved for our instruction to teach us something. Good point. Any other questions? Inspiration, okay, the word inspiration itself, the idea of God breathed, all right? And so when we talk about the biblical books being inspired, we're talking about the idea that just as God gave the breath of life to man, and he blew life into humanity. In the same way, God inspires, God breathed on those writers to write those books. They were moved and inspired by God, but it was still in their voices. Sometimes I talk to people and they've got this idea that God just dictated to them what to say. Like they're, you know, a a writing service and God's speaking and they're just simply writing. That's not true. A good example of this that's very easy for all of you to recognize is the fact that we have a pastoral team here. And so all of us preach differently, yet you're all still hearing the word of God. God speaks to us. God will speak through people as they preach, but they don't all sound the same yet they're still conveying God's message. In the same way in the scriptures, God's speaking through these biblical writings, but they don't all sound the same way. God inspired what they wrote, but he didn't dictate what they wrote. Is that a fair 60-second summary? (laughs) 
So now, moving to the next phase, as we're talking about the reader or the hearer, and for the ancient world, it would have predominantly been the hearer because these would have been spoken aloud. Since these are God's inspired writing, as the word goes forth, it touches us. It's inspired. It speaks to us. It convicts us. It draws us to God. It changes us if we will allow it to. And so the inspiration comes not only in the writing process, but we could say in some ways the transmission of the message itself as it's either read or spoken aloud as it continues to speak to us. And that certainly separates all these writings from all other writings. I know I'm clipping along really fast, and many of you are looking thinking, it is after 8.30. Any other quick questions or comments? All right, everybody stand with me. If you do have questions, you are welcome to come and talk to me afterwards. How many of you kids have those lesson notes? If you did your lesson notes tonight and you want to come give them to Vincent up front, across the front here I have books that we brought, different genres of books, all of them fun children's literature. So any child here tonight who completed their lesson notes and will turn them into Vincent is allowed to come up here and take a book home. And that's our little take home tonight. The little ones too, even the little ones. I have, we have stuff up here that's geared more towards younger and stuff that's geared probably a little more elementary, middle school age. For the rest of you, thank you for attending tonight. God bless you. You're dismissed.